You're listening to the Zoe Turner Podcast, business and mindset conversations that will help you move from fear and uncertainty to development and growth so that you can crush both life and business. Please welcome your host, Zoe Turner. Today I'm speaking with extreme adventurer Ryan Pyle. Ryan is the host and producer of Extreme Treks and Extreme Ride. Welcome to the podcast today, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us why you're in Dubai. I live in Dubai um, and it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful place to live. I think originally when I came here in Dubai in 2018, it was more of like a hub for my travels. It was an easy place to get out to the far fetches of the world to make my TV shows. Um, and then obviously now with the world having changed, uh, you know, we're all just kind of sitting here stuck. So it's it's been a good place to be stuck, actually. It's been more open and more easy to get around than most places. It is a great place to kind of situate yourself if you enjoy traveling. Tell us a little bit about your journey, Ryan. My um, life journey? About your journey to having your own TV show and showcasing your amazing adventures. Like... How did this come about? So I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and, um, you know, it was a wonderful place to live and grow up. And then I went to the University of Toronto, uh, which was very multicultural and very interesting. Uh, learned a lot there. And I, throughout the whole time, I was playing basketball. So I was a, a university-level athlete, which was also great. But one of the things about being like a university-level athlete is you don't have a lot of um, time for hobbies. So, so it wasn't until kind of, I started to realize that my basketball career was going to end at the end of university. I wasn't going to be able to go on and play professional that I started looking for other things to do. And, uh, at university, I was taking some classes on, uh, an introduction to modern China. And then the introduction to modern China led to another class about China and another class about China. And then I just went, wow, you know, there's this whole world that I don't know anything about. So then when I graduated from university, I just went to China. Um, I didn't know anyone in China. I didn't speak Chinese. I didn't have a job. I just felt like this is something, something was happening there and I wanted to be a part of that. And, uh, the energy there was exciting. This was like 2001. So it was, uh, it was a life changing move because I ended up spending 18 years there. I knew I wanted to be a storyteller right away because when I first went to China, I went as a tourist and I was traveling around to see if I liked it. Uh, and then I went home and then a few weeks later I moved back permanently and I knew that I just wanted to tell stories about China. So there the storytelling element of my, you know, the next phase of my life was was happening. And um, so I worked for some local magazines in China and then I worked for some international newspapers and magazines and then I got in with the New York Times and then I was basically uh, a journalist for 10 years. So I got to cover China um, from 2002 to, to 2012, which was really an exciting time. When you say you got to cover China, what aspect of China? Was it political? Everything. Everything. I mean, we did um, we did stories about growth. We did stories about wealth. We did stories about poverty. We did stories about natural disasters. We did the Olympics. You know, we avian flu, pig flu, uh, minority peoples travel. You know, we every week we were out covering a different element of what China was and and what it was becoming. It was incredibly exciting, and it gave me insight into into how countries you know rapidly develop and 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 the growing pains that come with that. And it was it was beautiful. And then in 2008, 2009, we had the financial crisis um, and that really wiped out the publishing industry. So that led to kind of the the end of my print journalism career. 
and but I still loved traveling and meeting people and telling stories. So I decided to then make television and I didn't know how to do that. And I felt like, well, because I had been working for the New York Times and all these big newspapers and magazines that it should be easy to make a transition like that. So I wrote all these, you know, broadcasters and told them all these ideas I had for television shows, but no one, no one wanted to work with me. It was too much of a risk, I guess. So I just went out and started making my own shows, hiring editors and cameramen to make it happen. And uh, they sold. And then I just kind of oh, created, created my own career, <laughs> created my own career out of that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess when you've got something tangible, being out and you've actually taken action and you've done it yourself and you're like, right, I've got my own show I guess it's just more than an idea then whereas before when you're approaching people yep. it was kind of like an idea sure. I guess it's like all these you know, entrepreneurs they have all these wonderful ideas but unless you take action see how how that would work but I mean god hats off to you because that's an incredible risk incredible risk <laughs> and I know god I've only got a podcast but even just like setting up the podcast you know in terms of like the production side of things it is quite quite challenging how many people do you need out there so typically you know in order to produce a show would you just need yourself and the cameraman would that do yeah so what um so I've been in a really fortunate position in the early stages of my career no one wanted to work with me so I ended up having to do a lot of things by myself. And that taught me how to produce a show, direct a show, and host a show. And then also manage the post-production and then sell the show afterwards. Still running that same model. And what it allows me to do is insulate myself from the pressures of the industry and dealing with a lot of people that I, you don't need to deal with. And it's wonderful. It was wonderful before COVID. When we go out into the field to make a, an episode of Extreme Treks, for example, it's just myself and two cameramen. So I'm producing and directing and then they're shooting. And they've been with me so long that they also know how to direct me and how to tell me how to get things that we need and things like that. So, you know, I've been working with my camera guys, uh, one of them for five years now and the other for more than 10. So uh, the relationship was very strong and the work was amazing, award winning. That was great. And we were a very, very small crew and we got to see a lot of the world. That must actually be a perfect job these cameramen it was they have a love of climbing climbing trekking being outdoors sleeping in tents being offline uh no digital distraction connecting with nature learning about local culture learning about the world it was an education you've been to some incredible places what would you say was the most memorable they're all amazing in their own way and that's and I get to choose the locations and I get to choose the treks and I get to choose the episodes so every single one of them is really special it's like you know it's like telling someone which one of your children you like you love most it's impossible with regards to just pure natural physical challenge climbing Aconcagua in Argentina which is the 7000 meter peak uh, highest in South America highest outside of Asia that's definitely uh, was a special episode and the fact that myself and Chad and Jesse, my two cameramen, we all made it up together safely, filmed an entire episode, was incredible. But then, you know, we also did a 120 kilometer trek through the rainforests of Papua New Guinea on the Kokoda Trail. And that was less altitude, um, but even in some in some ways more physically challenging because uh, the rainforest was intense. The story there was beautiful because we were retracing the footsteps of Australian and Japanese soldiers who fought uh, along the Kokoda Trail in World War Two, the I watched three of them. Okay, and I did watch the Aka. I'm trying to pronounce it, and I've got it written down. Akankagwa. Akankagwa one. What I really liked, I looked. The guide there looked absolutely awesome. Max. 
Max, I mean, he looked fresh as a daisy, actually, at the top, but he's you, obviously no done problem. it. Yeah. More than that, 30 times. Yeah, that many times. I loved it that he was so encouraging mm. and that he was like, people don't know how strong they are until you actually tell them. It was, and that's what we need to hear when we're in those situations and you're about, because you said you were about to throw in the towel, and many times it crossed through your mind. Like, what does go through your mind when you're going through those really challenging, you know, when you, you're going through the most challenging parts of a trek? Like, what type of things go through your mind? I, th- I think um, it's all mental, first of all. Like, the physical elements of, of climbing and trekking are really, really basic. You know, if you can run for 30 minutes without stopping on a treadmill at a low rate, you can climb, you know, most of the non-technical mountains in the world. Um, technical being not needing like an ice axe and crampons and ropes, right? Like most most of the big mountains around the world, you can just walk up. And Aconcagua is the same. You can just walk up it. Uh, it's very dangerous in places. You need a guide. The weather is very challenging. You need someone to help you navigate these dangers. But if the weather is good, you can just walk up. And but but in saying that, the days are long. The altitude is serious. The natural conditions can kill you. You know, when you're walking and you're feeling a bit rough and you're wondering if you've got to throw in the towel, um, I just start to break down everything into micro victories, like 10 steps at a time, 100 steps at a time. I just start counting it out really basic. And and I really and I really just try to clear my head and focus on the task at the moment. Um, And that helps me do that because if you start thinking about tomorrow or the next day or what you did yesterday or we're not getting this filming done or whatever, you know, all this just leads to distraction. I think that just makes you weaker. So I just I just really if you're really struggling and you're really feeling bad, you know, I just focus on the next 10 steps. How do you navigate the filming? Doing these treks in itself is a challenge, especially when you're getting towards the summit, but having to produce and having to film and having to get the content for your own show when you feel like yeah, death. Yeah. Like, how, how do you manage to do all of this? Surely that must be quite, quite challenging for you. Yeah, I think we, we have to just remember why we're there, and we're there to, number one, be safe and make sure we can come home, and then, number two, we're there to tell a story. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll be feeling terrible, but then I'll just look around and be like, oh, this is pretty, and then one of my camera guys will go up ahead. And actually, starting and stopping is really difficult, so... You know, you'll stop at like 6,800 meters above sea level or something like that to catch your breath. And then one of your camera guys will walk through and he's also moving very slowly and he's also really struggling. And then he'll set up a camera and then you'll just walk slowly past him, you know, to get that shot to show just how high you are and how amazing it is. But yeah, you, you know, when, when you're a storyteller, you're always looking, you know, for the next great shot or the next place to do something to help convey to the audience where you are and how hard it is. So no matter how miserable you feel, you're always still kind of engaged in that storytelling process. Do you have any specific mind hacks or techniques, like when you're feeling really low and challenged, that you do when you're when you're climbing to kind of change your state? I think there's two things that I think about a lot. It's um, that whenever I'm suffering in a moment, I remember how hard I had to fight to get the privilege of being in that moment people watch extreme treks and they think it's fun that we get to travel all around the world but you know it took us seven or eight years to get that show off the ground of people saying no and you know now that it's uh, it, that it was a success and, and we had the chance to travel around like that was a privilege and we had to really fight for that so I try to remind myself 
you know, on a daily basis, how lucky I am to be out there suffering. Gratitude. Exactly. And then, and then the other thing is just breaking down the day, one day at a time, one hour at a time, you know, one climb at a time. And really just trying to, to break the day into like mini victories. Because I think you can be overwhelmed by large tasks, like climbing a 7,000 meter mountain or walking 120 kilometers through the jungle. But if you can just break it down to doing an hour and feeling good about it, you know, um, and feeling positive uh, or, or breaking it down into just the next hundred steps of having to climb something that's really steep um, and then taking a little break and then giving your pumping yourself up and then getting ready for the next hundred steps. I just feel like these breaking these things down into little micro tasks is a good way to keep your uh, momentum and your emotions high. What do you fear in life? Um, I value freedom of movement more than pretty much anything. And... Um, and I, you know, I, I moved from Canada to China. Uh, I got to travel around China um, with absolute freedom, telling stories. And then I got a chance to make television and literally travel the world. I mean, in two years of filming all around the world for BBC, we filmed in Tanzania, Morocco, China, the USA, Peru, Nepal, Italy, Oman, Russia, Iceland, Laos, Papua New Guinea, Bolivia, Argentina, Jordan, and Uganda. So that was in a 24 month period dream come true and you know it you get addicted to that lifestyle and i was addicted it's a drug um landing someplace new different smell different people different food different culture different altitude different weather new experience how to tell the story how to convey this to the audience you know where's the problem where what's the new task i was living the life uh it was incredible and that freedom of movement was uh was something i cherished a lot. I love speaking to endurance athletes because I've done a lot of endurance myself in the past. Marathons, ultras, Ironman. Well, I make that sound better than it is. Half Ironman. <laughs> but it's still, you know, it's still endurance. It's not like a 10K run. So I've done a fair bit of endurance and I love like the mental challenge. And I think when we were talking, because you and I went climbing a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a group of us that went climbing, and we were talking about the, the mental aspect. You know, I mean, there's only so much of it's physical, but most of it is mental. I was at an event a couple of years ago, and this lady said to me, she was one of the organizers at the event, we were having lunch, we were talking about sport, and I think I must have been talking about, I don't know, some of the crazy stuff I was doing. And she made this comment about endurance athletes having like emotional problems and mental health problems. At the time, I was a little bit taken back because I'd never really done any research into that. And I almost felt like she was being critical towards me. And she looked like, I mean, she may have been an endurance athlete, but she, you know, she, she didn't, she certainly didn't look like an athlete in any way. So I wasn't quite sure where that was coming from. I started thinking about it and I started thinking about, you know, when you're doing kind of endurance and you're just training, the fact is you're physically tiring your body out. And when your body's physically tired, you can't really think. You don't think. Okay, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this, this very well, um, but I know from a personal perspective, like for many, many years, my life was just like, exercise, exercise, exercise. So when I got into bed on a night, I was just physically exhausted. And and I didn't ha really have 
time to think about any issues that I might have had going on in my life or any emotional pain or anything like that. So my question to you is, do you feel that endurance masks emotional pain? Um, absolutely. And I think, I think going out and doing these trips all around the world, um, it actually makes you more aware. It, you're, you're way more aware of yourself because you're spending more time with yourself. You're learning more about yourself. Then you're educating yourself about the country and the people and the culture you're in. So you humble yourself with the idea that, you know, you're not as smart as you are. And look at these people living this way for so many years and, and you understand their way of life and their culture. And then, and then when you come back to whatever the normal world is that you live in, you're, you're heightened. You're not bothered at all by the things that other people are bothered by. Uh, you're not bothered by petty emotion. You're not bothered by domestic politics because you live on a plane and you travel the world. You're not, all these conversations just fly right over you and, or, or right below you and you don't care at all. And then you're right, the exhaustion, you know, allows you to just slide through any pain. Um, because all you're doing is getting ready for the next journey or the next adventure. I guess the point I'm making, is that a good thing? Because for some people that have, say, pain and they have issues to work through, isn't it like just putting a sticky plaster over the wound? No, I feel like you're solving the problem by going out and doing these things. So, I mean, I, I, I think I value my sanity and I would say that over the years my travel my experiences abroad my extreme adventures have allowed me to maintain a level of sanity that i might not have been able to achieve had i been in a city bombarded by the news media and the everyday problems that everyone seems to have to deal with i don't think i'm well suited for that existence i think for me the adventure treks and the extreme adventures and stuff like this it is meditative and I feel like I deal with more of my problems out there than I will ever deal with in the city. And I feel like spending 10 hours a day for 10 days walking through a desert is the most reflective time that I could ever imagine where I can actually think about who I am, what I want in my life, and who I want my relationships mm -hmm. to be with. And then I come out of that journey with an action plan that I can put into place. And, and, then, I, and then I go on to the next journey. And then I, I, do, I do the same thing. And I believe that that time that I allow myself out in nature, disconnected, away from the world, allows me to be much more self-aware um, than anyone that I've met who, you know, is in a city bouncing around from thing to thing, from friend to friend, from family to family, never giving them, never giving themselves a chance to really understand who they are or what they want. Meanwhile, I get two weeks living in a tent by myself where that's all I do. And, and I feel like my self-awareness is heightened and, and it's, it's more than running away from things. It's, it's giving yourself a chance to really dig in, uh, in, a, in an undisturbed environment. What plans have you got for the future in terms of what treks would you like to organize? What's on the horizon? Is there any, anything that you haven't done that you would love to do? So you're catching me at probably the lowest point in my career, mentally, emotionally, physically, and professionally. So COVID-19 has obviously completely destroyed my industry and my career thus far. And whether it comes back or not, I have no idea. And whether it comes back or not in the same way it was in 2019 is up, up to anyone's guess. So I don't even think about 
treks that I want to do or countries that I want to film in because I can't leave Dubai. And when you talk to broadcast partners or corporate sponsors or tourism bureaus, the people who fund my TV shows, they're in the same boat. They don't know when people are going to be able to travel safely again. They don't know when they're going to be able to fund film crews like mine to come in and do stories. Last year was amazing because in January and February 2020, I was setting up a bunch of deals for Extreme Trek Season 4 and we had the funding in place. And I was planning to do a whole bunch of series in Saudi Arabia because they were opening up and that was very exciting. And then um, in February, I filmed in Myanmar, a great episode in the Chin Hills. Now they're going through some tough times. And then in March... Uh, I filmed in Ethiopia. So on March 13th, I flew to Ethiopia two days after the WHO declared the COVID-19 was a global viral pandemic. And I had been sitting around watching the news for weeks, full of anxiety, uh, full of fear. And I was like, I'm done with letting the news manipulate me. I need to get out and live in a tent. So I went to Ethiopia because Africa seemed open and, and relatively un, unburdened by what was going on in Italy and China. Uh, and then eventually the rest of Europe and, and, and whatnot. And then so on March 13th, I flew to Ethiopia. You know, within a few days, I was up in the mountains, Simeon Mountains on the border with South Sudan. And I was going to do a nine or 10 day trek, sleeping in a tent, no people, just me and my guide, Daoud, and my cameraman, Chad. And then on March, I think it was like March 17th, Italy closed. March 19th, the UAE closed. And then I was stuck in Ethiopia. And that's like, that was kind of a, a game-changing moment. I couldn't get back to Dubai, which is where my home is. And then I ended up in Istanbul for four months under lockdown. And then I tried to film a little bit last summer in Europe, which was actually pretty successful. And then got back here to Dubai. And actually, 2021 looks worse for travel than 2020. Because 2020, people thought that this would be over in the summer and everything would be back to normal. And then uh, the winter's been terrible. And now everyone's much more cautious. And uh, travel is global travel the way we had done it previously. Uh, is going to be severely restricted for maybe years to come. I do know a few groups that have been out on treks. Mm -hmm. Is that is it different when you're filming? There must be something you can do in these challenging circumstances. There must be somewhere you can go. There, there to, there's one-offs. There's one-offs. You know, like the Maldives or Seychelles are open. You know, Tanzania is <laughs> open. Um, Kenya, I think, is also it open. It won't take you long to trek around the Maldives island. You know, but... If you think about where we are with Extreme Treks, we were given a mandate to make eight episodes a year. We were given a mandate to film on five continents. We were given a mandate to make a, a global television show. Sneaking into Europe and doing eight episodes of Extreme Treks doesn't count. Um, so there is a bar that we definitely want to make sure we can reach. And, and until we can get back to that level, you know, there's not really any point in trying. And, and doing one here and one there this year and then doing another year, one here, one there. You know, it doesn't really work unless we can plan them and do all eight kind of two weeks on, two weeks off, because that allows us all to make enough money to get through the year. And I'm talking about my freelance cameramen who only get paid when they work. Mm -hmm. Talking about my freelance editors that only get paid when there's content to produce. At the moment, that whole infrastructure of my production company is falling apart because we're not filming. There's no, there's no content coming through the company. There's no revenues coming from our broadcast partners or our tourism bureaus so this idea of maybe just doing one episode here and one episode there is not really fair to the guys and i'm basically now telling them that you know we pretty much have to start looking for other work because there's maybe a 50 50 chance we might not film for the rest of this year because it'll be just be too difficult if the world was open and everything was back to normal where would you go 
I would I would start planning. Yeah, I I would want to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, I would want to go to Colombia. Uh, that was one we had planned for 2020. I would want to go to Karsten's Pyramid in Indonesia. I would want to go back to China again. There's a lot of great trekking in China, maybe in Tibet, which is where we started our show in 2013. Now, wow, it's been eight years. Extreme Treks. We did our first pilot season in Tibet. We did four episodes all around these sacred mountains in Tibet. I'd love to go back and revisit mm-hmm. that. Maybe Georgia or Azerbaijan could be interesting. Um, maybe something in the Nordics, northern northern Norway, maybe Finland, something kind of really remote. That would be a lot of fun. And then Africa is incredible because it's just a, a such a diverse mix of countries and cultures um you know namibia the skeleton coast i mean south africa we had a we had a trek we were going to do through kruger national park uh we had all these kinds of things planned um you know they're still on on the list and circling around in my head but it's not for 2021 and then the question is is it going to be for 2022 or 2023 or should i find another line of work that's where i am at the moment let's talk about something (laughs) more positive more positive tell us about your time in Istanbul. Yeah. You, you you alluded when we were climbing that it was a beautiful place. It was. It was. So um so I was in I was in Ethiopia filming in the Simeon Mountains, and then on March nineteenth the UAE closed their borders to uh residents, although passport holders and local Emiratis were allowed to come back. So I'm a resident of the UAE, so I was not allowed to come back. So on March nineteenth I was sitting on the top of a mountain in Ethiopia, homeless. That was terrifying. So at that moment, we cut filming because we always thought we'd be able to come back to Dubai. That's the only reason we went to Ethiopia. We're like, the world will crumble. We'll be on the top of a mountain. It'll be lovely. And then we'll just go home when it's okay. It's like four hours away. It's only, yeah, three and a half hour flight. Like we always thought we'd be able to come back to Dubai. And then, and then, yeah, so then Dubai closed. So we called a driver. We hiked eight hours directly to the nearest road. And then we drove straight back to Addis Ababa. And the whole time we were driving back, we didn't know where we could fly to. Like you can imagine, we're just constantly scrambling on our phones, like which which countries are open, like where can we go? Um, you know, my cameraman Chad, he had a he has a home in Bali, which is where he stays in between production. But he but he's from Canada, like I am, and he wanted to try to go back to Bali because that's where all this stuff is. But Indonesia closed their borders, uh, and he ended up and and he's also a resident of Dubai too because he spends a lot of time here with me. And he couldn't come back to Dubai. So he ended up having to go back to Canada and live with his family, you know, under lockdown, uh, which had its own challenges. And for me, I didn't want to go back to Canada and uh, and I couldn't come back to Dubai. So, uh, you know, at the, you know, at the 20th, you know, at the at the last moment, Turkey was still open for international travelers. And I thought that I had a few projects in Saudi Arabia. I wanted to stay in the region. I wanted to stay within the same time zone roughly as as the UAE because I was still trying to do a lot of work and I naively thought that this would just be a two or three week thing um so I I went into Istanbul and I I exited Ethiopia the day before they closed the airport and I got into Istanbul the day Turkey closed their borders and then I was in Istanbul and I stayed at a hotel I checked into a hotel and I was the only guest in the hotel there were about 200 rooms and then after three days, they're like, sir, if you wouldn't mind, we're going to close up the hotel. And I was like, I fully understand. And then I moved over to the Hilton Bosphorus, which stays open no matter what, even through revolutions. That They were very proud of that. And then I was at the Hilton Bosphorus for six weeks. 
you know, two weeks, I would book two weeks because everyone said this was going to be a two-week problem, two-week problem. And then after three rounds of two weeks, I was like, this is going to be months. So I rented a, an apartment in Istanbul and, um, and I just rode this out. And one of the, one of the great things that happened to me in Istanbul was, uh, was after about two weeks of drinking and watching everything on Netflix after, after my little world had crumbled. Um, I was sitting out on my balcony one night having a drink watching the sunset and I could hear this uh, little kitten crying and uh, it was the worst noise in the world. It wasn't like meow meow. It was like help help. It was awful. And um, so I went down and I found this little kitten and he was in a box and he was like only five or six days old. So I brought him back up to the hotel and I cleaned him off and um, I didn't have any cat food and he was too young obviously to eat solid food. So I was giving him like coffee creamer which is actually very fattening. I Google searched it. It's like if you're in a real bind, coffee creamer is okay for little kittens. So I gave him some of that and managed to like get him through the night. And then the next day I went to a veterinary clinic and got him um, uh, a little syringe so I could feed him like milk and formula. And then I figured out how to do all that. And then I this like little cat, saving this little cat's life became my like whole world for months. And uh, after I got him through like the first week, the doctor said he'd probably be okay. The vet said he'd probably be okay. And uh, yeah, so I named the cat Whiskey, and I found him at the Hilton in Istanbul. And uh, and then when I... So he he was great to have with me for company. And then on June 15th, on July 15th, I managed to get out of Istanbul. So Istanbul was pretty amazing um, to be in. It's a great city, amazing people, but obviously it was on lockdown. So it was a shadow of its former self. I mean, there were days where I would go to the grocery store and the streets were empty. No one was driving, no one was going out, no one was like a ghost town. And I guess that's been the challenging during lockdown, those people that are on their own. I mean, you and your cat, it sounds like whiskey was a wonderful company for you, and maybe she saved you in a way. She made it so much, he, he. made it so much more bearable for you. 100%. Um, it was the same with me during lockdown. I, was, I had some friends who were stuck in South Africa, I looked after their cat, Frankie, for about three months. Oh, my gosh. I'm not even a cat person, but when I left, I was in tears, in absolute tears, honestly. I mean, I love animals, but looking after that cat really kind of made me see, because we'd never had cats at home. So it merely made me see just what beautiful creatures... They really are, yeah. and I've since rescued a cat from the streets. Very good. It's near the running track in Dubai. Yes. I was feeding it for five weeks. Like, I would literally, like, my running game was just amazing because I was going back and just doing loads of running. And then, you know, when they just look at you with those little eyes, sure. they just look at you like that, don't they? Yeah. And it really tugs at your heartstrings. It does. And... She would run towards me. She would sit on my knee. And then one day she was sat on my knee in the park. She lived in a bush in the park. Mm -hmm. She was sat in my knee. And I was just giving her a little hug. I'd been feeding her for about five weeks. She knew who I was. And then she just looked at me with those little eyes. And I just looked down at her and I said, I promise. I promise I'm going to find you a home. Sure. And and I verbally made that promise. Welling up just thinking about it. And and I knew I couldn't take her. I would have taken her mm-hmm. if I could, but I couldn't. No. I won't go into the details, but I just wasn't in the situation to be able 
even to take her home with me. Sure. Then there came a point where where I could, where I was, I could take her back, but only temporarily. And I took her and I found her a family within two days, but it consumed my life. I found her a family about 40 minutes away from, from where I lived and where she lived in the bush in the park, a British family. Unfortunately, on the second day, they let her out into the garden, despite being told not to. Sure. Because kittens you're supposed to keep in, inside until they become, because the creatures of habit, yeah? yeah? Until they become familiar with the surroundings. Anyway, she jumped the wall and that was it. She was gone. Oh, wow. Literally the second day. That's too bad. That's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. We finally located her and she was quite far away. Mm-hmm. And she was living in a bush in the middle of a road. Oh, wow. Like a dual carriageway. Jeez. So I went every day and fed her sometime. I, was, I just thought she would come to me and I'd be able to scoop her up in my arms and take her back. But she was rattled. But she was so, so frightened. Mm. Like, she knew I was there and she was allowing me to feed and she recognized my voice. But whenever I tried to get near her, she just ran away. Mm-hmm. Being completely inexperienced in kitten catching or cat catching, I didn't even realize traps existed right. until... After about five days of having zero sleep and it literally just taking over my life, right. I, I had this thought, there must be a way, and I googled cat trap. Anyway, next day I went up with a cat trap. Literally, I literally got her because I knew where she was. She was coming out to feed and I got her and took her back with me, placed her back where she is. But my God, letting go of that cat, kitten, even now, like, I just look at photos and videos and tears come to my eyes. Mm. It was the hardest thing, actually letting go of her. Whiskey's been traveling with you, like, all over the world. Uh, yeah, so... And how, do, how does that work? Does she not get frightened? Does she not run off? Doesn't run off. I have a leash harness. Um, so for four months in Istanbul, I made it, like, my mission to make sure Whiskey came outside every day with me. So I had a, I had a jacket with a hood. And he would actually sit in the hood because he was tiny. He could fit in my, my hand. So I would just put him in the hood and I had a little leash on him and I would hold the leash just in case he like fell asleep and fell out of the hood, which he did a few times. I could catch him. Um, but he came out with me, he came to the grocery store, he came to the pharmacy. In Istanbul, there was a coffee shop which was serving takeaway only. I made sure I went there every day just to like get out and, and meet other people even though like they were behind the glass and you know giving coffee through the thing. At least I was out. And I just brought whiskey with me everywhere. So every day we went out of the house. Every day I put on the little leash. He got used to it. He was even he would even purr when I would put the leash on because he knew he was going to go out and he didn't like staying at home alone. And then, and then, um, yeah, he got really used to being outside and 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 being inside and being on the leash. And then as I was in Istanbul, um, it started looking like you know Europe was going to try to open up in the summer. So I started reorganizing my camera crew and the broadcasters and all the people we work with to filming in Europe. I got into Istanbul on March the 21st at 7 a.m. on a direct flight out of Addis Ababa. And then I was in Istanbul until July 15th. And I flew to Slovenia, uh, Ljubljana, uh, which was the only country in the EU that was open to flights from Turkey. Because I am not an EU passport holder or an EU resident, so uh, tourists were kind of not allowed in. 
just like they are now, actually. So I was able to get into Ljubljana. And then when I got in there, I took a COVID test and I was negative. And then from there, I drove through Italy and then into Switzerland because on August 1st, I was set to walk across Switzerland and film. And we walked across Switzerland. We did 380 kilometers in 20 days along the Via Alpina from Vaduz in Liechtenstein all the way to Montreux on Lake Geneva for an episode of Extreme Treks, which was incredible. So that was always my goal was getting out of Istanbul and getting into Switzerland to do that episode. And then from there, we were able to travel around and film in other parts of Europe for most of the summer. So it almost felt normal. Um, but then November came around and everything got locked down and then we came back to Dubai. But Whiskey was with us the whole time. So um, we got out of Istanbul. So he was great on the plane. You can take him as, as cabin baggage. And uh, he fell asleep on the plane in my lap and that was fine. And then and then he loves cars and driving, and we drove all around Europe with him, and he's great. And um, and he became like a crew cat, and all the guys, the camera guys really loved him and loved spending time with him as well. Um, and he just kind of lapped it all up. So Whiskey has been to Istanbul, Slovenia, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Poland, Malta, Croatia, and Montenegro, and now the United Arab Emirates. Wow, such a well-traveled kitty not bad yeah i know amazing she's been to more places he's been to more places than i have yeah almost so we'll we'll see how the next you know few months or years play out but uh it's yeah we'll see how travel is we'll see how travel opens up so i'm assuming when you're outside with with whiskey you you only let him out on the leash only yes so you don't let him no no not at all that would be crazy right i think so yeah, because yeah. Uh, I want I enjoy his company, and I think he enjoys mine. He likes being fed. Uh, he likes the comforts of home. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't let him out at all because um, he has no idea, you know, cars, roads, other animals. You know, he's quite sheltered. But he does love going out on his leash because I have like this little bag, and he sticks his head out and watches everything as we go around. But he's definitely on a leash. Yeah. So interesting that that's all he's ever known, and he's t- taken to it really well. Yeah. You know, because there's that assumption that I alluded to earlier that cats are a creature creature of habit. Mm-hmm. They like to be in the same place. They like routine. Mm-hmm. If that's all you've ever had, then that's all you're ever going to know. Sure. But you know, it just goes to show that you can do the do the unthinkable, really. Yeah, I mean, and I have they a... adapt really, really well to it. They do, yeah. So I have this bag that goes over my shoulder, and he sits in the bag. And I put the bag in, in my on my chest, basically. And I have one of those little e-scooters. And I ride around downtown Dubai. And he actually and I and I use this little leash to tag him to to lock him into the bag so he can't jump out of the bag. But he can put his hands up on the bag or on the scooter even and just watch everything go by. And he loves it. And yeah, he seems really happy. So I take him to Starbucks from time to time. And uh and he seems pretty. And I bet he gets a lot of attention. He does get a lot of attention. Is that why you take him out with you? No, I love because he he's a he's a nicer cat. He's a nicer cat when you take him out. He's more relaxed in the evening, and he he definitely appreciates it. Uh huh. Yeah. Something to do in the evening. Do you ever question your why? Why you do everything that you do? Um, with regards to the television shows. Or just anything in life. I guess anything, yeah. I don't I don't really question what I do. I just try to make sure I do it. If I have an idea, I make sure I execute it. And then, because um, I, I hate having ideas and then not doing them. And I hate having like what ifs 
and I hate having like, oh, I should have done. Uh, that drives me crazy. So if I have an idea, I'll just do it. Um, and then if it's right or wrong, I'll know. And then I'll make adjustments as we move forward. But having, like, having a great idea and then not doing it is the worst thing in the world. So I don't usually question the why. I just make sure that I complete the action and then assess afterwards. I love those logical thought processes. Yeah. I don't know if it's just me, but being a woman, I think we tend to be more emotional, mm-hmm. whereas men are just more logical. Where sometimes for a woman, it would probably maybe take them hours to answer that question. You know what I mean? Sure. And then it's just bang, bang, bang. Sometimes I wish I had a man's brain so I could think like that. Think. The goal of life is to learn, right? I mean, every day we want to learn as much as we can. We want to meet new people. We want to try new things. We want to eat new food. We want to, you know, we, the goal is to learn as much as possible. And the only way you learn is by pushing up against life. If you want to sit in your home every day and try not to die uh, because of fear of going outside, of fear of meeting people, of fear of taking risks or whatever, you're never going to learn anything about yourself or the world around you. The only way you learn is by pushing up against life. And that causes friction, and that's where the risk comes in, and then that's also where the reward comes in. So every day you have to try to push up against something in order to get something out of life. Um, And that's just what I've learned. And, you know, I tried to do that with television. We tried to pick the most exotic places, the hardest to get to places, the most amazing locations. You know, that was how we did that. And I, you know, and uh, that was kind of how I pushed forward in my career. You're constantly being pushed outside of your comfort zone when you're traveling. Every day. And when you're filming. Do you feel that that helps you navigate your way through life in general? Of course, because every problem that you have to deal with in the city fails to compare to any problem you have to deal with out in the wild. You know, living, like like I, I mentioned this earlier, like I'm, you know, I spent two weeks a month living in a tent, filming in remote places, doing these amazing extreme adventures. It made me a better person and it made me able to deal with everyday life in a so much more uh, thoughtful way because nothing rattles me. Every, like I, I would come back to the city and people are like, oh, this person at work's bothering me or, oh, my landlord said this or, or, you know, my friend didn't invite me. I don't care. I don't, I just, I mean, it, all of that stuff just slides right off me. Uh, I sleep so well at night. Um, and, you know, I try to treat my friends with great respect. I try to stay connected to my loved ones and family members, but they know who I am and they know what makes me tick and they know what makes me happy. And, and, and the rest of life can just slide right off. And that's great. And I think when you can get to the point in life where you can do that, where you're not getting absorbed and taken in by all the drama, Negative and, energy. And the negative energy. Terrible. And the news reports. Awful. Like you were saying about COVID, I know very early on, I, like many of us, I think we were consumed with watching the news like I was too. After a few days, I was just like, that's it. No more. I stopped watching stopped the news. Stopped watching the news. Yeah, like two days after I landed in Istanbul in March, I stopped watching the news. Uh, anyone, anyone around me, including the news media, that tries to generate some emotion out of me, I cut off right away. Because it's all negative and it's not helpful. You know, people who poke you or twist you to get some kind of rise out of you, the same way advertising and every media around us does, I cut it off right away. It's so unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I mute everything on social media and I pretty much just use it as a one-way tool to let people know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then if people comment on my page, I'll respond. But if people, I don't go actively looking at other people's posts Mm because most of it's garbage. 
And if you're living in a world where you're trying to filter out garbage, then social media is the best place to start filtering. 100%. What advice, Ryan, would you give for somebody who has a story to share? They've got a great story, a great idea. What would you say to them? That never let anyone tell you you shouldn't share that story and realize that in order for you to share that story, there will be some blood, sweat, and tears, and no one will probably support you if it's your first story. So get ready to do it by yourself and then use that as leverage and gunpowder, you know, or uh, gunpowder to get, you know, something explosive for the next story you want to tell. Because people who have great ideas, if it's your first one, no one will believe in you. So, and if you don't do it, you're never going to get to number two or number three or number four or number five. You know, we filmed Extreme Treks. Uh, we did it um, self-funded. Actually, we've done them all self-funded. But the first season, we didn't even have a broadcaster lined up. We just went out and did them because we thought they were a good idea and we thought they'd be visual. And we'd be talking about culture and people and ways of life and nature and in a unique and interesting way that people hadn't done before. So we had to fund the whole thing ourselves and then eventually we got it sold. And now we've made more than 25 episodes. So, you know, don't ex just because someone doesn't want to support you doesn't mean it's not a good idea. And actually, I've now come to the conclusion that the more people tell me no, the better an idea I think it is. Because if it's out of most people's risk tolerance, that means it's a damn good idea and I need to follow this through immediately. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. If you would like to watch any of Ryan's shows, they can see them on... So, yeah, so they're on Amazon Prime in the USA, the UK, and Germany. They're on Vimeo. Uh, you can catch snippets on my YouTube channel. And, of course, you can always follow me on Instagram at Ryan Pyle, which is just R-Y-A-N-P-Y-L-E. And my website is www.ryanpyle.com. And I watched them on Vimeo the other day. And if there's any of you guys out there that have been through all Netflix and you're wondering what else to watch, I would definitely, you want to watch something a little bit different, a little bit exciting, um, I definitely recommend these to you. I was addicted to them and I'm sure that you will love them too. Ryan, thank you for being an amazing guest today. Thank you for having me.